may be seated. My, good morning. Uh, my name is John Dunning. I was with you not too long ago, actually. Uh, I work on the campus of Kansas State University with the PCAs, with our denominations. College Ministry Reformed University Fellowship, it's my privilege to be with you this morning. I wish for the sake of Pastor Aaron it was under better circumstances for him. Um, but I truly count it as a privilege that my schedule allows me to be free to, to come and do things like this, to be with you all again this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to turn with me in them to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to consider the first three verses of chapter 12 this morning. Give me just a second to get myself situated here. My wife and I uh, learned early in our marriage that when we took road trips and I was driving, that she was not allowed to look at me. The reality of our situation was this. We would be deep in conversation, and she would be sitting next to me, and I'd be driving, and I would want eye contact to make sure that we're on the same page and understanding each other. And you know what happened? As soon as I turned my head to look at her, the car drifts. And she would do this and say, John, look forward, please. And I would correct, and not overcorrect, but correct back in and stay in my lane appropriately. And so she had to learn that she would simply stare straight ahead when we have conversations, and she would discipline herself not to look at me. And the reason is this, very simply put, where you're looking matters. Because where you're looking determines where you're going. It's actually what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know throughout. We don't know who the writer is, so we're going to refer to him as the writer this morning. We know that it was written by an individual to a group of, of Christians, most likely Greek speakers, Greek speakers who are committed followers of the Lord Jesus and have a background in Judaism as well. Again, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know why I say that, because it's filled with language written to people who are very, very familiar with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and all that goes with that. But this morning I want us to consider as we look to God's word together, where are you looking and where are your eyes fixed? Hear now the word of the Lord as I read to you from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we consider these things this morning. Father, indeed, we pray again that you would send out your light and your truth that they would lead us and take us to the place where you are, that we might behold you in your glory, even as sinful creatures, that by your grace we might know you through your word this morning. We pray, Father, with, with humble confidence and even with some trepidation that you would work your will in us through these, your word, this your word this morning, that we, your people, sitting under this word, would be changed. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. If you're paying attention, depending on your social media outlets and, and streaming services, you may be well aware that the Winter Olympics are right around the corner. They're close. I'm seeing commercials for them repeatedly wherever I turn. And there's two in particular that have stood out to me in recent days. One, one is about, focuses our attention 
I believe he's a figure skater named Nathaniel Chen, who apparently at a, at a competition sometime in the recent past had just a horrible performance. He fell, nothing was in sync, everything was a struggle. But the next day he came back and gave one of the best, strongest performances of his life. Another commercial is about snowboarder Sean White, who I believe has been riding a snowboard longer than most of my students have been alive. He's getting ready to participate in his fifth Olympic Games. He's one of the most decorated snowboarders in, in the world because of this. He's performed tricks that other, other, other boarders have never, not even dared to try. And these commercials stand out to me because of how they work and what they do. You see, they're doing far more than giving us data or a lists of accomplishments. They're telling us stories, and those stories draw us in. You see, these ads work for you and me because they're inviting us into the stories of these athletes and of what they've accomplished, but not simply what they've accomplished, but what it's looked like for them to get where they are. You see, we, we long to know that they're human beings, and yet we long to know that they've worked hard to get where they are, that they've sacrificed time, comfort, sleep, and money, that they've risked failure and tried and tried and tried again and gotten back up when they've fallen. You see, these stories we want to connect with our lives, and that's why this works for us. It's not just the, the end result, but we want to know that, that, that what they're doing has something to do with us, even if we're doing little more than getting up off the couch, not even not getting up off the couch as we watch this. We, we long for their stories to be our stories, for us to, to say some, some line of, they've worked hard and accomplished something, maybe I could someday work hard and accomplish something, or, or something as simple as that. The writer, writer of Hebrews is tapping into those kind of connections that we make, isn't he? If you look in, in, at the end of, chat, of verse 1, what does he say? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, what the writer is doing is he's, he's comparing the Christian life to a race. He's introducing a metaphor as if to say this, if you're following Jesus, your life is like running a race. Now, he doesn't tell us, he doesn't specify the contest or the competition. And, and thankfully, he doesn't even really present it as a competition, as if I'm doing well in Jesus' sight as long as I'm doing better than the people sitting around me. That would, that would be silly, I think, for most of us, even if we, we sometimes fall into that. But what we notice as we look at these three verses, there's a repeated idea or word or, or, or variations on the same word, and it's the word endurance or endure. It shows up in each of these verses. You see, the, the idea of a race or a competition fits the, the, idea, the picture of the Christian life in, in terms of it being a long-distance thing. It's not a sprint. It's not a we'll get done with this by next week and we're good to go for the rest of our lives. But it's a lifelong pursuit. And he's saying, I want you to think of following Jesus like running a race, and in particular, wrestling with what it means to endure as you run that race, as you run with patience, with effort, with some, at times, setback and struggle, but ultimately with hope. So with this metaphor before us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What does he want us to do with that? What does it look like for you and I to follow Jesus in such a race? The first thing I want you to see is, is that he invites us to look at the big picture. And, and all of this has to do with where we're looking, right? Because where you're looking matters. And the first thing I want you to see is that he invites us to look at the big picture. And I want you to notice where he starts. You see in the midst of, in moments of struggle and uncertainty, 
for you and me, which are part of daily life, he directs our eyes to look at what's happening actually outside of us first. He wants us to see the big picture of what's happening. In particular, if you look at the beginning of verse 1, he starts by inviting us to look at what's around us. In particular, who's around us. Notice how he begins. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? A cloud of witnesses. A dense gathering of people. The, the, the image, the picture that we're given is, is something to the effect of we're in, we're in a stadium running our race, running and running and running, and the stands are filled with people all cheering for us. They have our back. They want to see us do well. It's part of the metaphor that's here. And he's saying we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Now, who's in this cloud? If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, the previous chapter, verses 11, or chapter 11, is filled with this, these, this cloud of witnesses because he talks about men and women who've gone before us in the faith, who've heard the call of God on their lives and responded to that call and known God's faithfulness in the midst of their response. And so he talks about Abraham and Moses, and he lists many others, and he talks about them following the call of God. And then he says here, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, and others. But these witnesses aren't merely spectators, and this is vital for us to, to understand. They, they are there watching, that's part of the imagery, but they're those who have gone before us in the same race. They get it. So when they're cheering, they know our struggle because they felt it themselves and they've experienced. They, be, they bear witness to God's faithfulness having finished the race themselves. They bear witness to God's work in their lives. They've run the same race themselves and they're there watching us. And the call for us in part is to look around us and see who those people are and what they're doing. But there's something else we notice. If you look, if you look to verse 2, he says very explicitly, not only look around you, but look ahead of you. In verse 2 in particular, he wants us to see this. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's as if he's saying, as you're running the race and you, you hear the cheers around you, don't forget to look ahead of you and see who's gone before you. In particular, he speaks of Jesus as the founder and perfecter. Some of your translations may say the author and perfecter of your faith. That, that first word, founder, carries the idea of the originator, the, 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 the writer, the initiator of it. But it's actually even more than that. We might use the word trailblazer, actually, to define what he's saying there to us. The one who's cleared the path so that we might follow is the one who's gone before us, and he wants us to see him. He's clearing all the, 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 the obstacles out of the way and telling us where to run. And he's inviting us to follow him. That's who, part of who Jesus is and what he's doing. But he adds to this this idea of the perfecter, the accomplisher, the finisher. He makes our actually finishing the race possible as he calls us to follow him. Now, what's interesting about this is it, it applies to us individually, I believe, because of this call to endurance, to, to stay the course. And so he is the author. Your faith originates not with you. It's not something for you to create. It originates with him, and he's the finisher of it. We can think of it in terms of our faith in him, but also the faith that he has established in all that is before us. He invites us to look, ahead, look around us, but also to look ahead of us. When I was a college student, I had the opportunity to take a trip to upstate New York for a hiking wilderness kind of leadership experience with this organization in, in the Northeast. 
And, and it was one of those things where we spent seven days in the woods. We carried everything on our backs, in and out of the woods, everything on our backs. I'd never done anything like it. We slept under the stars. It was a great trip. And, even, and actually, one of the days was set apart for us to spend 24 hours all by ourselves in the woods. 24 hours all by ourselves in the woods. It was daunting for most of us, but it was, it was a great experience. And the, the, the wonderful thing about this trip is our guides were actually friends of ours for co from college. They had said, hey, let's do this. And a bunch of us said, we'll go, we'll do it, what, what, why not? But, but what, what, what you have to know about our guides is they weren't just more knowledgeable hikers than the rest of us. Both of them had actually worked for this organization a previous summer. And so they had spent every day of, of a previous summer in these same woods, leading groups like ours through the woods. Part of the rigorous training, they actually didn't spend one day by themselves in the woods, they spent three days by themselves in the woods. They, they would do exercises in their training like, we're gonna drop you off here, here's a compass, here's a map, find us, kind of, kind of situation. And so they had been thoroughly equipped to lead us because they knew the layout of the land. They knew where we were the entire time we were there, even though for us it looked like, hey, there's another tree that looks like that other tree that we saw yesterday, it was that kind of thing for us. But they knew exactly where we were and they were the ones leading us through this. What a small representation of what, who Jesus is for us in the life of faith. He is the one who's gone before us and invites us to follow him. Beloved, in the face of doubt, in the face of fear, in the face of uncertainty or struggle, look around you and look ahead of you. Your struggles of life, the things you bear with you this morning are not unknown to other people. Let me say that again, they are not unknown to other people. You see, the Bible is filled with people who struggled in difficult marriages, who struggled with the grief and loss of infertility, who struggled with sing singleness and loneliness, who struggled with persecution, who struggled with poverty, who struggled with direction in their life. And the message to you is that you are not alone. And to look up and see that there are people around you who get it, who understand where you are. It's part of the beauty of the church, beloved, that we might bear one another's burdens, as the Apostle Paul says, that we might confess our sins to one another and not have to worry about being surprised when we actually sin, as one of my students told me a long time ago. You don't have to be surprised when you sin because it's part of our condition as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. You are not alone. You need to know that. And the, and the challenge for us is this, listen, I have never sat in a room with other people in a context where somebody was talking about something they were struggling with. I've never sat in a room and heard someone confess their sin and struggle and there not been heads nodding in agreement and understanding around that room. That has never happened to me. I've been a Christian basically my whole life. It's never been my experience. We treat it as if sin is what isolates us and keeps us separate from one another. And yet the invitation is to look around you and know that other people get it. The call for us is to find those people and to be with those people. But the other thing I want you to hear in this is this. Because Jesus is the founder and perfecter of your faith and of our faith, Faith is not something you have to create within yourself. Faith is not optimism. It's not looking on the bright side of life. It's not having a good attitude. 
Faith is looking to Jesus who has gone before you and is calling you to follow him. It is not something you have to make up. It's not something you have to stir within yourself just to, to feel better, to be better. Faith is looking ahead and seeing Jesus on the path in front of us and following him. The writer says, look at the big picture. But interestingly, as we again look at verses 1 and 2, we also hear him invite us to look at what's difficult. And I've already pointed out that the word endurance repeats in each of these three verses. That implies some sort of challenge, that it's going to take patience and effort and work to accomplish, to, to, to run this race. It will not be easy, and we don't need to surprise when it doesn't come easily. But notice what he tells us to do. Again, look at verse 1. He says in the, in the, in the middle of verse 1, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us lay aside every weight. You see what he's, he wants to look at what's difficult. In particular, he wants to look at our distractions and our sinfulness and pay attention to what's happening in our lives. He's talking about the things that make running and living much more challenging. These weights are troubles, they're distractions, they're the things in our lives that seem to figuratively and sometimes metaphorically simply slow us down. And the sin, the sin which clings so closely is the sin which longs to control your life, which longs to have its way with you. And his words are to lay it aside. Now, on some level, it makes sense to us, right? On some level, it makes sense because if you've ever trained for anything athletically, you know that part of the training process is to, is to introduce resistance into your regimen to help your body, to help your muscles be stronger, to help your, your body go. But when you're actually running the race, you take everything away that's not, that's not you in order to run and to move more freely and more clearly and more openly. A number of years ago, a student was telling me about I'm going to get the details not, not right here, but I think it was efforts to help a runner run a sub-four mile, which is a, quite an accomplishment. I don't think it's been done yet. Um, and and as he described to me what went into this, my mind was blown. Because there's this whole team of people trying to help this a person accomplish this feat. And what's fascinating especially is if you pay attention to the shoes that the runners wear. Because hours upon hours upon hours go into making the shoe as absolutely light as possible, shaving every extra ounce off as possible to give the runner every advantage. That's what he's inviting us to consider in our lives. To shave everything off that isn't helping us run this race and to run to, so we might run more fully and more, more quickly and more faithfully. Now, I want to, be, want to pause here and, and say something that, that I think matters. Again, notice what he says. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He is not saying to you that before you come to Jesus, you must lay aside all your sin and figure out your sin. That is antithetical to the gospel. Again, let me say that again. He is not saying to you, before you come to Jesus, you must lay aside every sin. He's writing these words to someone who is all, already running this race, who's already following Jesus. And he's saying part of following Jesus, of actually being in this path, is to grow in our laying aside these sins. But it is not the condition to actually follow. We need to see that clearly. But notice, as we look into verse 2, what, what he adds to this. He not only says, look at, what's, look at your sin, but he also says, look at your suffering. And we see this in particular as he describes Jesus. In the middle of verse 2, he says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame. Notice what we see in Jesus' life. He suffered deeply, and yet through that, he was looking at the joy that was before him. The joy set out in front of him defined the suffering that he endured for his people. It doesn't take away from the reality of the suffering. It doesn't minimize the suffering. We know that Jesus got to the point of sweating drops of blood. He was suffering and preparing to suffer so deeply and so fully. And yet it was joy that was out before him that he was pursuing. That joy defined the experience. And it let him face it. I've been doing some reading lately about first century cultural practices and in particular, what, what first century cruci- what crucifixion meant in the first century. And it's, it's jarringly fascinating to realize what was happening. You see, the Romans in particular were really concerned about maintaining peace. But let's put peace in quotes. Because peace meant you do what we want you to do and live your life the way we want you to live it. And as long as you stay in line, there's peace. And so one of the things that they developed in painstaking kind of detail was the the practice of crucifixion. Largely held out for for slaves. It was a public public display of what would happen if you would go against that peace. In fact, one historian says this, no death was more excruciating or more contemptible. You see, it was so brutal that even while it was public, that anybody passing by who saw it felt corrupted in themselves and couldn't, couldn't even bear to look. It was so brutal in what it did to kill someone so slowly and so painfully. He he goes on to write, everything about the practice of nailing a man to a cross was repellent. This is what was before Jesus. And he even took that shame and he despised it. He set the shame aside and said, I will take this on me for my people. It gives us the freedom to look at what's difficult, to look at our sin and to look at our suffering. What do you see, beloved, in your life? Do you see your sin? There's a call to face our sin with honesty, to take attempts to set it aside, to take, at times, even drastic measures. It may mean that the the thing you need to do is get rid of your smartphone and get a flip phone, and I'm not saying that ironically. It may mean you need to figure out ways to limit screen time for you and your family. It may mean that you need to rearrange your schedule to, to sit with another brother or sister and simply talk about what's going on in your lives. It will cost you something. I, I'm not downplaying that. But the call is to face this with honesty. And at the same time, there's, a, there's an invitation to look at, our, look at our suffering honestly as well. To, to not feel like you have to put, put on airs when you, come, when you walk through these doors on Sunday mornings to pretend that you've got your life together, to pretend that you've got it all figured out, that your kids are all obeying you all the time and that you're having a great marriage and everything is wonderful when it's not. The invitation is to, to actually look at that and to know that even as you suffer, the gospel can bring clarity to that because Jesus suffered. Under the sovereign hand of God, your suffering is not lost on him. And it is not lost to your brothers and sisters. We need to find the freedom. We can find the freedom to look at what's difficult. There's one last thing I want you to see. Not only does he say, look at, look at the big picture and look at what's difficult, but he also says, look at the end. Verse 3, in fact, begins 
with these words, consider him, consider Jesus, if you will. But before we get there, let's look back at at verse 2 and notice what he says. He wants us to see what's completed. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus ran the race and he's completed it. He sat down because he's done. He sat down because he's done, because the work is done. We see this throughout, throughout the book of Hebrews. Because in the Old Testament, the priests never sat down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle or in the temple because there was nothing to sit down and watch. It was all active doing and doing and doing repeatedly. But what the writer of the Hebrews makes, makes the point he makes over and over again is that Jesus did sit down because the work is completed. Remember watching my dad and his brothers when we would take family trips during the summers growing up. My, my, I grew up in Wisconsin, but my extended family was all in North Carolina. And every summer we'd get in the van and drive two days to, to go spend time with my grandmothers. And my dad in particular um, felt the burden to care for his mom specifically when we were there. And so we'd spend the week on her, in, her, in her farmhouse, and he would always find projects to do. And I remember in particular one summer, uh, her well was going out. Her well water was, was turning brown, and so they needed to dig a well. And so he and his brothers rigged up this contraption with an old Ford axle to pound pipe into the ground to, to dig a new well. And every day they, they went out and they, they did this. And it was full of repetition. It was long days. It was hot, sweaty work and full of troubleshooting. If you've ever done a job like that, you know what it's like that, to call it at the end of the day when there's, no more, when there's no more light and to go in and take a shower, to eat, a din eat dinner, and then just sit and crash. And I remember my dad and his brothers would sort of doze off in the chair after dinner at like, you know, 8 o'clock at night, and it felt really early to me, but I didn't understand because I wasn't doing the work. And you know what it's like to, at the end of a week like that to have the project done and to feel a sense of accomplishment and relief and just done. That's what's pictured for us when Jesus sits down. Because the work is done, what he's accomplished for us. And he wants us to see that. But notice in, at the end of verse 3, what does he say? He adds to this, that he endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He wants us to see, to see the completed work, but he also wants us to see the hope. The hope that is there because he did this for us so that we might not grow weary and faint-hearted. Because he knows full well that that is going to be our response. Because even in the best parts of our lives, there is sin-tainted realities happening. Even in the best of our relationships, there is struggle. There's misunderstanding. There's not giving one another the benefit of the doubt. There's insecurity. There's pride. There's arrogance. There's lust. It's a part of our lives. And he says, I know you will grow weary and faint-hearted. But what he sets before us is, is hope. Hope that we can, we can believe in. Can you see that this work is done? Can you see that there's nothing more to be done to defeat your sin? There's nothing more to be done because death, the final enemy, has been defeated. There's nothing more to secure your place with him that can be done, especially by you. Because Jesus has sat down and the work is done. And even as you struggle, can you see hope before you? Can you endure because Jesus is leading the way? We could summarize these three verses this way. We could simply say this. Verse 1 tells us that the Christian life is running a race. 
Verse 2 tells us that Jesus is the champion of that race. And verse 3 tells us that Jesus is with you and he's for you. I want you to know that. And I want you to look to him. One of my favorite uh, pastors from history is John Newton. He's written, he wrote, one of, one of his, part of his pastoral ministry was, was actually correspondence to, to numerous people, and many of those have been saved. And I would invite you, if you can find one of his collections, which is pretty readily available, to, to grab one and start reading it. On one occasion, he, he was writing with, with a woman who was a dear friend of his, and w- reading only his letters, not seeing what she wrote to him in response and previously, you get the sense that he had commended her for some part of her life, some way that he was encouraged by growth that he had evidenced in her life. Then you get the sense that she wrote him back and said, how dare you? Don't you know my sin? Don't you see what's wrong with me? Don't you? Because I see it. You, you have no right to, to write encouraging words to me because I know, too, I know my own heart much too clearly. But then Newton responded by this. He said, you look at your life, and I'm paraphrasing some here, you find contrary principles. You are conscious of, conscious of defects. He's saying, yes, you see those things, and I know that you see those things. But then he says this, you could not be right if you didn't feel those things. He's, he's admitting that there is weakness and sin in her life that remains. But he's saying to know sin and struggle, to know these realities, is a sign of grace at work. Because if grace was not at work in your life, you wouldn't care and it wouldn't be a big deal for you. But then he went on to say this. He said, our righteousness is in Jesus. And our hope depends not upon the exercise of grace in us, but upon the fullness of grace and love in him and upon his obedience unto death. Beloved, your hope is not in how fast you're able to run that race. Your hope is not in how many times you're you're able to avoid stumbling. Your hope is in Jesus who has gone before you. Your righteousness is bound up in him. And it's done. There is indeed a path before you. There's a path before all of us. There are witnesses around you who are watching you and they're testifying to the Savior who's ahead of you and inviting you to look to him. Your sin and your struggle are real. His saving work is done, and he is your hope. I invite you to look to Jesus. Let's do that as we prepare to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let me pray for us uh, as we continue. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that is before us in what you've accomplished through your Son. Father, I pray for us this morning that you would give us eyes to see with greater clarity what is before us. In your name, Jesus, we pray.